Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As Bernie Sanders continues to surge, he gets an assist in putting billionaires in their place. I like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. And in this month's episode of The F Word, the head of the African People's Socialist Party, says that the majority of the world needs to fight against colonialism rather than against fascism. Colonized peoples, the dictatorship is always there. We have been oppressed by democratic colonizers and can't make a distinction between a democratic colonizer and, and a fascist colonizer. Gerald Horn remembers a Southern Africa freedom fighter and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Ahead of the February 22nd Nevada caucus, Senator Bernie Sanders picked up the endorsement of the youth-led March for Our Lives movement for gun safety and the Muslim rights group Engage. And despite persistent media attacks on him and on democratic socialism, he sits atop national polls and polls in Nevada. Well, here to discuss the people, happenings, and issues of the 2020 presidential campaign is a new contributor to On the Ground, Niambi Carter, assistant professor of political science at Howard University and author of American Wild Black, African Americans, Immigration, and the Limits of Citizenship. She joins me from here in D.C. Welcome to the show, Professor, or can I call you Niambi? Niambi is perfectly fine. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, let's jump right in with the latest on the Democratic primary and that explosive debate on Wednesday night. And first, let me get your reaction to what you saw or heard. I thought Elizabeth Warren was ready. This debate, I think she had fire in the belly and she really gave it to Michael Bloomberg. And I think all of them did, but she certainly led the way. So I was actually thinking this was one of the more lively debates. Um, that we've seen over the last few months. And I, and I thought it was interesting to have Michael Bloomberg there, given that he's not on the ballot in Nevada. But nonetheless, it was his first showing out the gate. And I think that was an important temperature moment, too. So we'll see sort of what the polls and other things yield in the next week. And we'll certainly see whether folks in Nevada were interested in any of these candidates when they uh, finish voting out this weekend. So... I heard one figure that 70,000 people have like voted early in Nevada, which is confusing because it is a caucus state. But I suppose you can caucus early or put your preference in early. And that's more than all the, the total number of people who voted or caucused in 2016. So that says something. Now, you mentioned Mike Bloomberg, and there were several appointed critiques of Mike Bloomberg during the debate. 
And I was really curious about that. Not only is he not on the ballot, but leading up to the this debate, it seems as though he had bought out every ad space on every black radio station within my earshot here in D.C. and when I was traveling to Philly recently. So, you know, and given the response in the audience, I wondered if he had just bought out like black leadership. What do you think? Well, you know, I think this is a tricky one because one of the things that Mike Bloomberg has done is give a lot of money to different organizations, different cities that I think many people view as attempts to buy black support or black surrogacy. But that's something Mike Bloomberg has done before. I think what black elites do don't necessarily sway black voters. And I think it still showed that he has some weak spots particularly around stop and frisk. And then, of course, Elizabeth Warren brought up the issue of the multiple allegations of sexual harassment in the workplace. So I don't know that his market share will necessarily mean that he will bring that many black voters to his camp. Nonetheless, I think second choices are important because at least from some of the polls we saw, people were considering Mike Bloomberg and he had been able to substantially cut into Joe Biden's firmly black base. But I don't know if that's going to hold. And certainly because he's not competing in Nevada or South Carolina, we really won't know what the effects of Mike Bloomberg's attempts to woo black voters will be. Right. And so one last point on the debate and the presidential race is your thoughts on South Carolina. One of the commentators asked, I think, Biden afterward, who was going to get uh, Clyburn's endorsement in South Carolina. And it reminds me of your earlier comment that what the elites say and do or endorse won't necessarily be followed by the black electorate. South Carolina will be a real test because this is going to be the first state where we see a lot of black voters and we've been talking about black voters for months as if, you know, there isn't a range of opinion among the community. I think we see a a generational split here with older people, older black people going for Joe Biden and younger black people being interested in Bernie Sanders. But again, South Carolina will be the test. And while he may get Jim Clyburn's endorsement, that doesn't mean that South Carolinians, black South Carolinians are automatically going to go with who Jim Clyburn has a sort of anointed as his person. I know we're rapidly running out of time, but I just wanted to switch over to the issue of human needs. Trump recently released his proposed budget and it, further boosts an already bloated military and betrays, quite frankly, betrays many of his campaign promises to not cut Social Security or Medicaid and and Medicare. And I, I wonder what kind of calculation is he making? Because these programs are used by his base. Absolutely. I think he's banking on the fact that his base won't likely notice because some of these things are going to take time to bring the allocations down. But I think he's also trying to shore up the military and the wall, which were also things that he ran on. And what he's suggesting with this budget is that people's health care doesn't count, that Social Security doesn't count, that temporary assistance doesn't count. And like you said, these are things his base uses. But I think sometimes his base doesn't even think about 
if he is hurting these programs, he is hurting me. I think they think of these things as, wow, you know, he's going to protect our national interests. And sometimes people are more invested in their biases and in their bigotry than they are in their own self-interest. Because as you said, none of this makes sense. And when we think about cuts to Section 8 and Head Start and WIC, I mean, these are so important. These programs sustain people and sustain communities. And so that he's saying, I don't care about these things. It's telling his base and everybody else what they should know. He is interested in U.S. might and militarism and using, you know, military spending as a way to, one, you know, tighten up the claim that he's a patriot and that he cares about America and that we're going to look strong in the world, while all the other cuts he's making suggest that he is happy to let Americans languish, and particularly poor Americans go without food, without shelter, without medical care. And that should scare anybody, especially his face. So I don't know if you have the most outrageous thing that you heard a say what moment from this week. Say what? President's pardon. He pardoned Blarad Blagojevich, oh. um, Michael Milken. I mean, these <laughs> people who were really bad on a number of dimensions, he said, go ahead, you know, get out of jail free card because he felt their sentences were too, too harsh. Meanwhile, you have political prisons and others who are languishing. And I'm certain he will try to trot out the women, the non-white people that he has freed. But those, I mean, let's be clear, are just to sort of cover his behind, not because of a real concern about the lack of due process or justice in their cases. Well, he already trotted one sister out during the Super Bowl with the Super Bowl ad. So I suppose you're right. But I've totally run out of time. Uh, I've been joined by Niambi Carter, assistant professor of political science at Howard University and author of American Wild Black, African-Americans, Immigration and the Limits of Citizenship. Thank you, Niambi, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Esther. Mercy, 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 
all things and what they do to be What about this overcrowded land? How much more will you from me? Can't you stand In climate news, Indigenous people and supporters of the Wet'suwet'en Nation in Canada continue to stop rail traffic as well as block roads, bridges, and ports in eastern Canada to show their opposition to a gas pipeline that they say will violate Indigenous land, endanger natural resources, and contribute to the climate crisis. Also, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments on February 24th in a case to determine if the Atlantic Coast Pipeline can cross the Appalachian Trail. A coalition of activists planning to demonstrate outside the Supreme Court say that this is the first time the court has heard a case about a pipeline in years and that this case and others moving through the courts challenge the right of pipeline companies to claim a quote-unquote public necessity to take private land through eminent domain and then degrade public benefits like water, health, and the climate. These concerns about natural resources were the same as those on the agenda when indigenous environmental activists spoke to the Sunrise Movement this week in Northwest D.C. Chantal James has more. The Sunrise Movement hosted a teach-in on Monday night at St. Stephen and the Incarnation Episcopal Church in Columbia Heights. The event, titled Reflections on Standing Rock, featured three speakers who made connections for the environmental justice movement from indigenous perspectives. Andean activist Wyra Forster, Marion from the Bolivia Solidarity Network, and Navajo activist, author, scholar, and independent presidential candidate Mark Charles. As she spoke, Marion warned of the implications the U.S. coup that sent President Evo Morales into exile has for both indigenous people in Bolivia and the environment. Essentially, old figures of the elite, old politicians, who want to come back and continue what they had uh, already done before in previous presidencies. So uh, people are seeing a lot of parallels with what's happening now to what's happened in the past, and that's especially dangerous. Follow the DC hub of the Sunrise Movement on social media to learn more about their upcoming actions. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. And in DC, workers at Safeway grocery stores rallied Wednesday to set a strike vote because they say the private equity firm that controls Safeway, Cerberus Capital Management, has taken $350 million out of the company in so-called management fees and dividends and now want to impose hardships on workers, including freezing new workers at minimum wage for three years, making health care more expensive, and reneging on promised pensions. These and other contract proposals are unacceptable, said one worker, Natalie, at the rally. I'm here to represent all of my fellow part-time union brothers and sisters at Safeway and Giant Stores. A 24-hour cap on weekly hours is downright disrespectful. How can you corporate bullies cut hours, have extremely long lines, and they have the audacity to ask the already capped workers to extend their shift because they need help? That's crazy. Well, guess what? We will no longer do that. What we'll ask to say, we'll simply recite these words. 
Give me a fair contract. Give me better wages. Help me feed my family. And if you agree to all of that, then we got a deal. What do we want? What do we want, Thank you. If no contract is reached, 10,000 Safeway workers in the D.C. area will take a strike vote on March 5th. And finally, in culture and media, Monday, February 24th is also the day that a London hearing is scheduled to begin to determine if WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will be extradited to the United States to face charges under the Espionage Act. A coalition of peace and press freedom activists called Unity for J is planning daily rallies in front of the White House starting on Monday, February 24th at noon to protest Assange's extradition to the U.S. for publishing leaked material exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. And finally, on February 28th, members of the Venezuela Embassy Protectors Collective are scheduled to head back to court. Their first trial resulted in a hung jury, and on the 28th, they will learn if the Trump administration plans to try their case again. The four activists, Kevin Zeese, Margaret Flowers, Adrian Pine, and David Paul, occupied the Venezuela embassy here in D.C. at the invitation of the Venezuela government after the Trump administration attempted a coup in Venezuela and ejected Venezuela's diplomats from the building. The $18 million embassy in the Georgetown section is owned by Venezuela and considered sovereign property under international law. But at the trial in U.S. Superior Court, jurors were told that the president of Venezuela is not the elected president, Nicolas Maduro, but instead Trump's appointed puppet, Juan Guaido, and that Guaido had the right to appoint his own ambassador to oversee and grant permissions to the embassy. Those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. If being a savvy listener is why you tune into On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, please support this labor of love at 202-588-9739, 202-588-9739, or if you're listening online or you can get to your computer, go to wpfwfm.org and just click on that bright red Donate Now button at the upper left hand portion of the screen 202-588-9739 or go to wpfwfm.org this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everm, and i'm joined now by professor gerald horn our geopolitical analyst for more international news and culture news this week. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, it looks like all of our world news this week is from Africa. A U.S.-backed Saudi-led coalition carried out airstrikes in Yemen on Saturday, and that killed 31 civilians and wounded dozens more, including women and children. And it just really disturbed me when I thought about how the loss of life, this is a massacre in the Horn of Africa, just is ignored. But I know that we wanted to talk about other news in Africa. The de Klerk Foundation in South Africa was forced to retract 
some pretty outrageous statement it issued saying that apartheid was not a crime against humanity. What was that about? Well, I think what it's about is the point and the fact of something that I'm afraid to say we're not unfamiliar with on these shores. Nowadays, racists are unrepentant. They put their finger in the wind and have detected the rise of white supremacy, not least in Washington, D.C. and the White House. And that has helped to motivate people like F.W. de Klerk, the last apartheid president of South Africa, to make these outrageous statements. But it also reminds me, at least, that in terms of helping to propel our just movement for reparations to the descendants of enslaved Africans in North America, we would do well to seek a ruling that both slavery and Jim Crow were crimes against humanity. Hmm. Therefore, with no statute of limitations preventing recovery of massive damages from the perpetrators, not least the United States government. I should also say that F.W. de Klerk is responding to the fact that finally the African National Congress government during this term of parliament is moving towards significant land reform and his outrageous comments were meant to deflect away from this very important move by the NC. So were those comments from him or by this foundation or is that one in the same? It's one of the same. Okay. I mean, it's, uh, the foundation is the length and shadow of F.W. de Corp, the last apartheid president. So also in Southern Africa, one of the founders of the Mozambique Liberation Front for Limo, Marcelino de Santos, died in Maputo earlier this month at the age of 90. Maybe, you know, you could tell us more about him. Well, as we all know, the struggle against imperialism and white supremacy is one war with many fronts. And one of the most significant fronts has been in South Africa and Southern Africa more specifically. When you think of that struggle in Southern Africa, you think of Govan Mbeki, a counterpoint in South Africa to Nelson Mandela, a father, the father of former South African President Thabo Mbeki. And when you think of Mozambique and when you think of the founding of Free Limo, which Marcelino Dos Santos helped to found, uh, you think not only of him, but you think of Samora Michelle, you think of Eduardo Manlani, another founder of Free Limo, who, by the way, attended Oberlin College. And I, on a personal note, I met Marcelino Dos Santos years ago at an anti-imperialist congress in Moscow. And I have to say, uh, his presence had quite an effect on me, not least because he was sharing a workshop where you had people speaking different languages from all over the world, and miraculously, he seemed to be able to converse with every person who was speaking, irrespective of their language. And I'll never forget that episode, and I think we should never forget Marcelino Dos Santos, the founder of Frenlimo in Mozambique. Finally, Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, was in Africa. It kind of reminds me of, of Pence's trip the trip by Vice President Mike Pence there, where he was basically trying to uh, head off the influence of China in Africa. And China is basically spreading development projects there instead of military bases and weapons. Well, it was a very curious journey. He went to Senegal, and I'm afraid to say that the war against religious zealots in that part of Africa, particularly Senegal's neighbors, Mali, 
Niger and Burkina Faso, it's not going very well. I'm also afraid to say that it's a direct outgrowth of the disastrous 2011 overthrow of the Gaddafi regime in Libya, uh, which helped to unleash a tidal wave of religious zealotry that has yet to be arrested. He also went to Angola in southern Africa, and it seems to me that it would have been appropriate for the government there to effectuate a citizen's arrest of Mr. Pompeo. After all, we all know that the CIA, which he once headed, intervened in the struggle in Angola in 1975 in collaboration with apartheid South Africa. It was only with the intervention of Cuban troops that that monstrous intervention was beaten back. And it's appropriate that you began our discussion talking about Yemen because Mr. Pompeo also visited Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, in the Horn of Africa. And this war in Yemen by the U.S. ally in Saudi Arabia is creating a major refugee crisis on both sides of the Red Sea. That is to say, not only in Yemen itself, but also in countries like Ethiopia. And it's also curious, as you also suggested, that he seemed to spend an inordinate amount of time basically warning Africans in a very paternalistic manner about the alleged peril and danger of collaborating with the People's Republic of China, despite the fact that China has built railways and other infrastructure that has been a lifesaver for Ethiopia and that part of Africa. In fact, I would urge Mr. Pompeo to hurry back to Washington and convince his GOP comrades in Congress to cough up some money so that the United States can compete with China in building infrastructure, in building highways and railways and all the rest. Right. How about some building some right here? Okay. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to end our conversation without uh, you having a chance to talk about the Pan-African Film Festival. And there were at least three films that I think you wanted to tell us about. Well, I am still here. Okay. I'm sitting right now in the parking lot uh, of the theater, which is nearby Martin Luther King Boulevard and, quote, Obama Boulevard, unquote. Oh, I, can, I kept hearing. So I did hear some, some cars and stuff. So, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Point number one is that before every film, an ad is played for Tom Steyer, the Democratic presidential aspirant, in preparation for the California primary in a few weeks. And I found that ad buy to be very instructive and quite curious at the same time now with regard to the films i would point listeners to well always before you before you go on i mean i'm surprised it's not mike bloomberg because as i was saying on this show uh he's bought out every black station from here to miami including black gospel uh radio which never gets any ads like that. So there, I have never seen one campaign like altered like the GDP of like, the community, you know. But anyway, go ahead. Well, Tom Starr is spreading around a lot of money too, particularly in South Carolina in preparation for that primary in a few days. But the film I was going to mention, number one, is Always in Season. It's a documentary about lynching. It focuses on a recent lynching in North Carolina of a black male youth and then reels back to the latter part of the 19th century and marches forward, talking about the thousands of black people, including black women, by the way, which this documentary also focuses on, who were subjected to these extrajudicial massacres and killings. It's quite informative, and I recommend it. Also, I should say that the documentary enlightened me because it points out that 
there have been a number of reports about a rise in suicide in black males, in particular young black males. And this documentary intimates that these suicides actually might be lynchings, particularly the mode in which these black male youth purportedly choose to kill themselves. Okay, I have some clips from Always in Season included on the movie's trailer. If you knew in your heart and in your mind that someone took your child's life, how far would you go to get to the truth? I think they hung him up to make it look like a suicide. It looked like a back-in-the-day lynching. His body would be hung in the courthouse square for all to see. All white folks are invited to the party. Lynching was a message crime. They happened in places where the body would be seen. And it's the public nature of lynching that really condemns the white community because the idea that people didn't know, they did know. As I started researching black males committing suicide in public over the last few years, I became quite concerned that there may be a bigger surreptitious movement at play here. The caption, last night picked before the game. That does not sound like a person that was planning on killing himself. Any injustice affects everybody that's around it. So we don't want anything in the dark. Bring it to the light. Those were excerpts from the documentary Always in Season. And that film is directed by Jacqueline Olive, playing right now at the Pan-African Film Festival. And, well, I see that some of those documentaries we can access through, like, independent lens and some other format. So so hopefully we can, you know, catch up with those films here in D.C. or on the East Coast. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this is the third week of the month, so it's time for the F word, in which we focus on fascism, using as our touchstone the statement by 1960s revolutionary George Jackson, who defined fascism as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. He said that fascism is the last stage of capitalism in the heart of the U.S. imperial center, where the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. And joining me this month is Omali Eshetela, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, founded in 1972 to lead the struggle of the African working class and oppressed masses against U.S. capitalist, colonialist domination. Welcome to On the Ground, Brother Omali. Well, thank you so much. I'm very happy to be with you. I thought that maybe we could just start with you speaking in general about the relationship of the black working class to the idea and the institutions of fascism. Well, I'm familiar, rather familiar with George Jackson. He was a prominent force uh, during the black revolution of the 1960s and uh, formidable in so many different ways. And of course, he, as you know, he went in, into the prison while in the prison. He you know, organized prisoners, and uh, especially in the state of California, but was influenced throughout the the prison system throughout this country. But we differ with Comrade George around this question of fascism, and we differ. The definition that Comrade George has offered is not, uh, it's not peculiar to George Jackson. In fact, that it is a a definition that we've heard come from uh, various other forces. And the reason for our difference is that we see that uh, African people are dominated uh, here in the United States and throughout the world by colonialism, that the capitalist system itself rests upon a foundation of the enslavement uh, of African people and the colonization of Africa and peoples around the world. I mean, Marx talked about how what he referred to as wage slavery in Europe uh, requiring as a pedestal slavery pure and simple, which suggests to us that all capitalist activity rested upon the foundation of slavery and colonialism uh, as we experience it today. Mostly what people refer to when they talk about fascism, uh, they're talking about that time where the bourgeois uh, democracy uh, is exposed for what it is, uh, which is simply a hidden dictatorship. When they talk about fascism, mostly what they are talking about is that moment, uh, whenever it occurs uh, in the society, usually during moments of severe crisis, where bourgeois democracy, the democracy of the ruling class, where the dictatorship of the ruling class is no longer hidden. It's not a hidden dictatorship any longer. It's obvious. It's naked. But with colonized peoples, the dictatorship is always there. We have been oppressed by democratic colonizers and can't make a distinction between a democratic colonizer and, and a fascist colonizer. And the French played a serious role in the struggle against uh, Germany and Nazism uh, in the Second Imperialist War. They were forced to because obviously they were occupied uh, by Germany. But the same French fighting against what they characterized as fascism uh, were also at the very same moment oppressing and killing people in Vietnam, uh, in Algeria, African people, and even up to this date, the democratic imperialism, the democratic bourgeoisie, is controlling something like 14 different uh, countries in Africa. 
So we think that this discovery of fascism or the crimes of capitalism as manifest by fascism, it is something that uh, was obvious uh, much, much, much longer, much earlier than what appears what to some to be this marriage between corporate and the bourgeoisie state. That's a, a difference that we have. Okay. It's interesting because, you know, I've been doing these interviews. Actually, this is kind of like the fifth anniversary of the series. And people have discussed the ways that the U.S. and other European countries have exported fascism abroad. So in a way, they um, it's it's really an important um, point that you're making because usually when they discuss fascism, they're talking about how it manifests in the imperial center. So in the United States or in Germany or in Italy or in Spain, but not in the colonial reach of these European countries or the United States. So people have discussed uh, the ways that the United States has exported fascism, not only in Latin America, but in terms of Vietnam and some of the other places that the United States has been involved in various wars and invasions of countries. What I would suggest is that colonialism is much older than what they refer to as fascism. Oh, yes. And that we have, I remember Amilcar Cabral, uh, he spoke about how uh, during the struggle they were engaged in against Portuguese colonialism. At the time, Portugal itself lived under what they characterized as fascist dictatorship. And the leftists in Portugal were saying that they should uh, sort of defer the struggle against colonialism and unite with the struggle against fascism in Portugal. And that uh, the victory of uh, the struggle against fascism in Portugal would end colonialism. And Cabral's response was, I don't know about that. You know, uh, we sympathize with the Portuguese people in the struggle against fascism. But what we are very clear about is that uh, the defeat of colonialism will destroy fascism. Uh, in Portugal. And of course, uh, that is exactly what happened. And what I'm saying is that the whole capitalist uh, system rests upon a foundation of colonialism. And that uh, the real struggle, and what usually happens is when people begin to chant fascism, 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 to us, they are saying that we should choose a democratic colonialism versus a, a fascist colonialism. And what we're saying is that the fascism is something that has only manifested itself in Europe, uh, usually, or in places where Europe has exported itself. Not the U.S. exporting fascism in Vietnam. I mean, like I said, French, the French were there before the advent of fascism uh, and colonizing and killing people in Vietnam. And the same thing is true in Africa. So, But usually when people say, and this is happening in real life, the struggle is against fascism, they mean... Uh, choose our enemy. This is what usually Europeans mean, fight against our enemy, but not against the system. Now, Trump is the incipient fascist. What this always suggests to us is that our struggle must be directed at this problem that Europeans are experiencing as a consequence of the bourgeois state revealing itself as dictatorship, which again happens uh, from time to time during the periods of crisis of the whole system. So the dictatorship is there for African people every day. I mean, is it fascism? The wall, the border that separates uh, parts of uh, Mexico, stolen parts of Mexico from other parts of Mexico has been there a long time. Nobody was saying this was fascism. It was there on the democratic reign in this country and Republican reign in this country. It's always been there. So what I'm saying is that 
Uh, I think African people and other oppressed people, I think our concentration has to be the destruction of colonialism. It is colonial capitalism that defines our reality and is the foundation upon which all of the capitalist activity occurs in Europe and in what we refer to as the imperialist centers that might include America, Australia. I mean, Australia is not experiencing fascism. Look at what's happening to our people there. And it is colonialism, raw, naked, brutal colonialism that our people in India experienced before uh, anything, before Hitler or Mussolini or Franco even hit the scene. This was the reality that Africans and other colonized and oppressed people uh, have experienced. uh, uh, And it came about as a consequence of the very founding of the social system that we know as capitalism. That's for sure. In terms of the institution of slavery and colonialism around the world, systems of genocide, really. I'm wondering, though, if there's some intersection, though, with the fact that when you talk about the U.S. and you talk about European countries going out and colonizing countries, it's really to expand capitalism. All these um, invasions and colonizing of people was to extend what they call now euphemistically American interests, for example. And actually, a lot of people are really getting a, a real lesson under Trump because he has torn away a lot of the mask, uh, a lot of the euphemisms that people used to use. They used to use the lie of humanitarian relief or democratizing a country or we're going to spread democracy. We're going to get rid of some brutal dictator that perhaps they even, you know, put in place. But now they use this this ruse about American interests and Um, When you talk about working class people, it's very clear that, you know, stealing Venezuela's oil is when they talk about American interests, that's the interests of the oil companies or instituting misery in the Congo. That is to steal their precious minerals that they have there. So that's the American interest, so-called of, you know, the tech companies that need those precious rare minerals. So I guess my point is that I wonder if there's some intersection when I use George Jackson's statement to talk about the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. And so in that way, um, even if we're not using the word fascism to talk about what happened in Africa, in the era of chattel slavery, in the era of colonialism, even though the word fascism isn't used then that's in fact what it was. Yeah. I think this, this term fascism is very important. It's important at this time in history. Because the uh, the colonized and oppressed peoples of the world are facing grotesque uh, life and death uh, situation, where just as a, a condition of trying to stay alive to exist makes it necessary for us to fight against the whole capitalist system. And I hear what you say about uh, the expansion of capitalism, but what I'm saying is that capitalism is a product of imperialism and not the other way around. It was empire. Uh, leaving Europe and coming to these shores that we call America. It was empire leaving Europe and going to Africa. It was empire leaving Europe and going to Asia. This is what Karl Marx referred to as the primitive accumulation of capital, the whole start up of the capitalist system itself. You say that the expansion of capital, when the Europeans came here, they weren't expanding capital. They were looking for loot and resources and they found them here. And the process of doing that here and in Africa and other places They not only created a whole new social system and they reconfigured the political economy of the whole world so that there is not 
now a lot of different countries in casual relationship to each other, but a single world economy that connects us all uh, in a dialectic of oppression and wealth, you know, coming as a consequence of, uh, of oppression and the theft of the same resources that you're talking about. Today, we talk about monopoly capitalism. But sometimes we talk about financial capitalism. Sometimes we talk about capitalism, capitalism, capitalism. All capitalism, whether it's called monopoly or anything else, again, rests upon a foundation of slavery and colonialism. Marx himself, I mean, I can use the words by Marx himself, who talks about the origin of the social system that he referred to as primitive accumulation of capital. He says, in order to understand how this whole thing came about, we have to presuppose an accumulation of capital that did not come about as a consequence of capitalist production, but was the starting point. And that starting point, he referred to as primitive accumulation of capital, turning Africa into a warring for the commercial hunting of black skins. He talked about the 1841-42 war that was made by England against China, uh, the so-called opium trade. This is the origin of the whole system. We agree with Cabral that if you really want to end fascism, then what you do is attack colonialism, and colonialism the foundation for the entire process. That is the voice of Omali Eshetela, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, joining us for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism. Stay with us, and we'll be back after this break. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this is the February episode of The F Word, where we talk about fascism. My guest this month is Omali Eshetela, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. And in the, the first part of our conversation, we were talking in very broad terms around definitions of fascism and its relationship to colonialism. And, and how people really define the struggle that we're in right now as black working class people. So, Brother Omali, I would like to switch now to talk about the recent plenary that your organization held in Florida. And I wonder if you could just tell me about on an organizational level or, I don't know, strategic level, how you see black working class people fighting against, whether it's fascism or uh, this stage of colonialism around the world? This was the first plenary of our 7th Congress, where we again you know, worked very hard to sum up this whole crisis of imperialism. And from our perspective, the crisis is one that uh, stems from uh, the fact that capitalism is a parasite on the body of humanity and peoples around the world 
are taking back resources and challenging this parasite, the existence of this parasite, which is responsible for the unending wars that we see happening everywhere, that uh, the U.S. Uh, could not stop these wars even if it wanted to because it has to be able to continue for its own existence, theft of resources from Africans and people throughout the Americas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we came back and we summed that up. There's nothing that challenged our understanding about that reality. And we see even uh, Trump uh, being a manifestation of this crisis. And that part of what we also recognize in our seventh Congress that's been reaffirmed since then is that uh, one of the reasons that Trump has been under assault even by a sector of the ruling class in this country is that he has disrupted a process that was initiated some 70 years ago uh, with the creation of this Atlanticist group. And the Atlanticist group has how capital internationally uh, has performed, uh, has functioned. And so uh, this is where we see the arrival of uh, things like the, the United Nations and NATO and various other kinds of trade organizations, trade relations, and uh, the transfer uh, the movement of the center of the world economic system, monetary system, uh, from England to the United States. And if we recognize that elections themselves are simply nonviolent contests between different sectors of the ruling class for control of the state to their own profit-making benefit. And so what happened with this last election with Trump, uh, Trump uh, was a surprise. He was not supposed to win that election. He got much more traction before they could do anything to stop him. Uh, to get rid of him, and he ran an election against the Atlanticist arrangement, against NATO, against the United Nations, against you know military occupations and all this other kind of stuff, and against the uh, uh, and he began to make uh, uh, you know having these relationships with Russia. And if you re remember uh, the whole Atlanticist arrangement, a part of it, uh, the the NATO uh, and even the United Nations was to. Part of it was to limit the capacity of Russia, of the Soviet Union, to carry out what was perceived as a mission for the emancipation of the workers of the world. Certainly, that's how they characterized it. And so now Trump has challenged all of that and with the assault on the Atlanticist uh, project. And now, uh, uh, as we see, oppressed people everywhere striking out. We saw Cuba in the 50s, and we saw interesting things trying to emerge in the 1960s. And then the existence of the Soviet Union was quite helpful in some ways because there, at least there appeared to be the, uh, uh, the way that uh, uh, people fighting for liberation could play the Soviets' uh, uh, superpower against the American uh, superpower. But that hasn't existed for a while now. And so we see what's happened with Venezuela. People in Venezuela trying to win their freedom. People in Bolivia trying to win their freedom. There's an escalation uh, at different times. Uh, Nicaragua, you know, I was in Nicaragua. The struggle of oppressed people to take back the resources is what created this whole crisis that we're looking at now. And so, so anyway, that's how we see much of what happened. We talked about this in our plenary, but our party... I think and we believe that a distinguishing feature of our party is that we are not here simply to criticize imperialism. Our objective is to take power. If we're not talking about power, we think that anything else, is, it doesn't even make any sense that the objective has to be to organize, to take power, to empower the African working class. And not just uh, in the United States, which is, uh, which is one story, but it, the fact that the African revolution is an international revolution. And that we have concluded a long time ago that the struggle of black people 
has run into its limitations some time ago when fought within the context of the borders that have been created for us by imperialism. So we not only exist in the United States, but we exist in the Caribbean. We exist in South Africa. Some of our most important work in the world is happening in South Africa. Uh, we exist in Ghana. We have a 2020, we exist all over Europe. We have a 2023 Congress that's going to be occurring uh, in South Africa. Uh, and, and so these are the things that we talked about and these are things that designed, first of all, uh, to establish the advanced detachment of the African working class in all of these places around the world that connects our struggle uh, as one struggle uh, with strategic fronts every place that we are located. And the question is, how are we taking that on? How are we carrying out that mission uh, in the face of this contest we have with a growing desperate uh, kind of imperialism fighting for its very existence and creating uh, conditions that uh, people often refer to as fascism. I know that I am uh, quickly running out of time and I wanted to, you know, I actually wanted to mention that uh, last year uh, when there was the demonstration against NATO here in Washington, D.C., you were among the speakers that we featured on our broadcast from that demonstration. And when you were talking about the Atlanticist project, it, it connected to that, to that NATO kind of anti-NATO action that happened here in DC last year. So as we wrap up, um, you know, in the face, uh, you know, right now in 2020, you know, there is no Soviet bloc that was often helpful in terms of liberation movements. There's this effort at increased repression from the United States, from other imperial centers. And also, I should say that, you know, I went to the anti-imperialist conference in Cuba last November. And I know that there is uh, a movement, you know, just like there's a non-aligned movement in the U.N., to uh, bring people together to basically fight against this imperialist order. I just want your final thoughts on that process. We salute that. We're really very appreciative of that. We were just in Venezuela uh, a few weeks ago uh, at a similar anti-imperialist conference that was held there. The comrade uh, from our uh, party uh, who was from Congo but living in England now attended that. And so we are very much, we are very supportive of that. And we want to do everything that we can in the the basic thing we are trying to do is help win recognition of the struggle of African people, not just in the United States and not just in particular location, but our overall struggle to rectify the relationship, to reverse the verdict of imperialism. Uh, and because we think that the success of imperialism uh, is profoundly determined by its success in, in continuing the theft of resources from Africa. You mentioned earlier on about what was happening with Congo and, and how people are able uh, to laud this guy Steve Jobs without even recognizing the deaths and destruction that his success uh, has caused for us in Congo. And, and that is even certain other people who characterize as phil philanthropists, who really rich people who are looting Congo, stealing all of our resources, etc. So we support that. Uh, and we uh, also are calling on uh, people around the world to support the growing uh, efforts to unify uh, the African liberation movement, unify through such efforts as the Black Hispanic Coalition for Social Justice is having a school, an electoral school, uh, that's going to be in St. Louis in April of uh, this year. And uh, the efforts to build the African Socialist International, having our first Congress on the African continent in 2023. This is a process of bringing all of the anti-imperialist forces uh, together in various ways. And we think it's a grand thing that is occurring. Well, I've been joined by Omali Eshetela, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. 
for this month's episode of The F Word. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Brother O'Malley. Thank you so much, Sister Esther. Again, I really appreciate being able to be with you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. The music we play this hour included Marvin Gaye, Mercy, Mercy, Me, The Ecology, Stevie Wonder, Loves In Need Of Love, and Danilo Perez, Panamunk. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you.